Would you pray with me? Father, you are holy. We proclaim that to you this morning. You're worthy. You are the King of glory who sits on your throne in heaven for all eternity. We bow before your presence this morning. These songs are intended to be an offering to you, an offering of praise. We sing sincerely from our heart. Pray that you will accept it as such. As we move into a time of study of your word, I pray, as Mark did earlier, for clarity, uh, for conciseness of speech, and for truth. We give this time to you and pray that you would be honored in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, guys. It's good to see a stage full of people. I mean, all we really need now is a, a smoke machine and maybe some <laughs> fancy lights. And we'll be one of those fancy churches. But I have to be careful of saying that stuff because Weston will construe that as permission. And I think those things are in his budget every year. Uh, they're denied, but they're in there. So welcome. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, before we get into today's message, I do want to invite you tonight at 5 o'clock over in the multipurpose room in the Family Life Center for our uh, Sunday evening Bible study. It's been a while since the church as a whole has had an opportunity to gather together to study on a Sunday evening. It may go all the way back to the days where we had Sunday night worship uh, with Music and everything. I don't know. It's, it's been a while at least. So we're going to look at um, insight, gaining insight into finding and knowing God's will. And I told Dan, I said, I think what I'll do is I'll just go down the row and say, God's will for you is this, and God's will for you is that. And I don't know if that would be uh, encouraging or terrifying, uh, but I am not going to do that because I don't know what God's will is for you, other than those things that are God's will for all of us. And those are the things you generally hear preached from God's word. But anyway, it starts at five o'clock, and that's five o'clock central time, not five o'clock fairway time. So if you have children, make sure you drop them off, you know, at five till five or 10 till five, so you can be in your seat at five o'clock, because that's when we'll begin. We need the whole hour for the study. All right? That's at five tonight. If you haven't signed up, the sign-up sheet is right outside these doors. All right, today we're going to continue. This is week three of our series on membership matters. We looked, first of all, at what are we even doing here, and we talked a little about um, the purpose or the task of the church. We looked at some marks of a true church, as the Reformers saw it. And then we looked at the two ordinances that Jesus specifically commanded that we do. The second week, last week, uh, we looked at who's in charge around here and how are decisions made. We talked about congregationalism briefly, and then we discussed elders and deacons, which, by the way, our nomination period is still open for elders and deacons. And if you've already filled out your card, you can either put that in the offering basket up here, or you can hand that directly to me, and I'll get it to the right person. So... Those are going on. Well, today, our message is entitled, Who Pays for All This? Why are you laughing at that? <laughs> all right. Uh, the short answer to that question is 
the church members pay for all of this? Uh, through your offerings to the church. That's the short answer. Who pays for all of this? We don't receive any money from the Southern Baptist Convention. In fact, we send them money. We don't receive any money from our state convention. In fact, we send them money to assist them in their work. All activities here are funded by you. Now, how this occurs differs from church to church. If you were to go to many churches, in fact, this one for a period, you might find a mechanism for funding this in place, something like that which we used offering plates that we passed down the rows and let you put money in it up until COVID, at which time the people, the smart people were convinced that the COVID um, virus could live on solid surfaces for X number of minutes, and so it wasn't safe for you to handle something that someone else handled. I don't know if that's true or not. It was thought to be true then. And so we stopped passing the plates. And so in many churches, they've gone to devices like this one, a tithe box. In fact, I believe the elders gave me permission last year, maybe the year before, to buy one of those. We just used this little basket that I found in the office. Uh, but there are nicer looking receptacles for your money. We may end up getting one of those. But that's just a central place that you know is there for your offerings. Now, some of you may be adventurous, and you end up going to some hipster church where you're not greeted by a greeter or an usher, but rather a barista who gives you a nice latte as you walk in. And at some point in the service, you may be confronted with one of these <laughs> as the way that churches collect their offerings. We're not going to dwell on the methods of collecting offerings this morning. That's a matter for the elders to discuss and maybe include the deacons. As to do a room like this, we'd need six or eight ushers if we were going to pass a plate and a lot of iPads if we're going to put tip screens in front of you all. Um, but this morning, we are going to talk about giving. Oh, yes, a sermon about giving. Why does everyone hate sermons about giving. I think this is the first one I've preached, and I've been the pastor for four or five years. I think this is the first one. Are we afraid that the preacher is going to tell us we're not giving enough? Or is he going to tell us how much we must give? And, you know, we resent people doing stuff like that, especially about our money. Well, I'm not going to do that. First, I'm not in a position to do that. I don't even know what you give other than the total that's in the bulletin, just like you know it. I know it. But I don't know what each one of you give, and it's important that I don't know that uh, to guard against any kind of favoritism that might occur or anything like that. So I don't know what you give. I'm not in any position to tell you that you're not giving enough, and I'm not going to tell you how much you should give. As much as possible this morning, we're going to stick to what Scripture says. There are many ways you can teach on giving. We could go to the Old Testament and talk about how God commanded that the tithe be brought into the storehouse. And we could define what that was. And then we could try to defend the truth that that command has extended over into the New Testament. And a lot of people think it has. And a lot of people think it hasn't. 
And what I hope to teach to you this morning is that when you consider the truths of giving that I show you this morning, it's irrelevant whether the tithe is a New Testament principle or not. We're going to go beyond that. The first thing, though, I want to say is that God has been very good to Fairway Baptist Church. For the past several years, I don't know how many in a row, um, as Mark mentioned, our receipts have exceeded budget. And so, first, thank you for your faithfulness in giving, and thanks to God for providing for his work here at Fairway. And it's great. I think uh, Mark mentioned this in closing last week. It's great to be able to preach a sermon like this, not out of need. It's not because we're broke and I'm asking you to give more. And not out of correction. It's not that I don't think you're doing what Scripture tells you you should do, and so I need to preach on it. But rather, it's part of our collection on how the church works. Membership matters. So it really frees me up in my preaching. But before we even get to giving to the church, perhaps we should take a look at what it is to have a giving heart. The New Testament has a lot to say about giving, really more than any other aspect of church life. But I would say that giving to others, that is having a generous heart, serves as clear proof of one's love for God. James chapter 2, verse 15. If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So faith also by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's pretty strong language from James. But John goes even further. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You can see that in these two passages, James and John don't spend a lot of time talking about percentages that you should give or dollar amounts, but rather they go straight to the issue of a generous heart. A person who loves God will be known by his generosity. John asks of the ungenerous person, how does God's love abide in him? And that's a good question. Maybe we need to ask ourselves that. So perhaps we should strive to not get ahead of ourselves here. Instead of talking about how much you should give to Fairway, maybe we should ask how your heart is when it comes to giving. What do you feel when you observe a brother in need? What do you feel when you observe a stranger in need? Also, in the category of general truths, I think we should note that the New Testament teaches that giving should stem first from a life that has been given to God. We'll look a lot at 2 Corinthians 8. Verse 5 says, Not as we expected, talking about their giving, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. 
Now again, this is this passage in 2 Corinthians 8 is part of Paul's writing about the Macedonian Christians. And I'll be referring to these Christians throughout today's message, so maybe we should just read the entire passage. So let's begin with verse 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Paul is going to go on later in 2 Corinthians to teach that our giving should be done voluntarily. In chapter 9, verse 7, he says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now we're going to come back to that passage a little bit later this morning. So again, these passages... Percentages, dollar amounts, frequency, mode of giving, tax write-offs, the like. It's also interesting to note that as far as the New Testament revelation is concerned, giving was the principal area in which there was a cooperative effort among a number of churches. And you see this in the book of Acts, chapter 11. In verse 27, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. So two different churches here. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And then parenthetically, this took place in the days of Claudius. So, verse 29, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. It's not just in Acts. In 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, you see the Macedonian Christians, which we've already talked about, as well as a collection taken up for the Christians in Jerusalem. You'll see that there. So this was a main mode of cooperating amongst churches, and it still is today. So we're not even yet concerned with funding the local church, but rather we're concerned with the heart that is inclined toward those in need. Whether they be individuals or groups of Christians in faraway places, and then when the need is known, Effort is made to meet that need. That is someone who James and John indicate would prove their love for God. You see, giving, like so many other outward behaviors of the Christian life, is first and fundamentally a matter of the heart. 
The things we do outwardly are first and foremost a matter of the heart in the Christian life. So, can I posit a brief definition of giving that may cause you to see it in a new light? Let's look at it this way. Giving is the overflow of the joy of God that gladly and lovingly meets the need of another person. Giving is the overflow of joy in God that gladly and lovingly meets the need of another person. We could parse that sentence a word at a time and make a sermon out of that. You see, giving within the church is central to the character of the people of God because of all that God has given to us. I'd like to share with you some basic principles of giving. And we'll make it a little more personal. First, God owns everything you own. God owns everything you have. 1 Corinthians 10.26 says, For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And Paul there is quoting Psalm 24.1. God owns everything, including everything you possess, because he created everything. In Exodus 19.5, he says, All the earth is mine. Again, in Job 41.11, he says, Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So, if God owns it all, and yet you possess it here, what that means is we are managers. Or the biblical term that you'll see for it is stewards. We are stewards of the things that God has given us. Now, the best illustration of this is the Old Testament story of Joseph. And this is found in Genesis chapter 39. You may remember that Joseph's brothers kind of left him. He was found and he ended up in Egypt. And he was a steward for a man named Potiphar. Remember, Joseph owned nothing. He was a slave. But he managed everything that Potiphar owned on his behalf. I mean, the management of Potiphar's resources included meeting David's needs, or David. Uh, Josh, uh, Joseph's needs, but his main responsibility was to manage Potiphar's resources to fulfill Potiphar's interests, not Joseph's. And that's what we are to do. God wants us to use and enjoy the things that he has allowed us to have, but as stewards of them, we are to remember that they belong to him. And they are primarily to be used for his kingdom. Primarily to be used for his kingdom. So this fact, or really the attitude that comes from acknowledging this fact, should change the way we view what we give. Most of us now consider, how much of my money should I give to God? Whether it be to the church or to some missionary we support or whatever the case may be. How much of my money should I give? Perhaps we should now think, how much of God's money should I keep for myself? That's what being a steward is. That's what being a manager of God's resources 
is. So the first truth is that God owns everything you own. The second is that giving is an act of worship. Giving is an act of worship. Now, this is sometimes lost, I would say oftentimes lost today in our age of online giving. I mean, my giving is set up so that I don't even have to push a button. It just happens. I get an email that says your gift to Fairway Baptist Church is being processed. And then I get an email a couple of days later that says your gift to Fairway Baptist Church is completed. It's hard to see that as worship, isn't it? <laughs> it's an email. Um, I don't know, it's setting it up, pressing three or four keystrokes would be considered worship at that point. But anyway, it's kind of hard for us to see it. We don't even pass the plates here anymore. So you can actually place money in the plate, which a lot of people believe that act was the act of worship, that putting it in the plate was worship. Most people are probably a little annoyed that we don't do that anymore. But I want to tell you that it is the giving that is the act of worship. Not necessarily placing it in a plate or placing it in a box or tapping the uh, tip screen, but it is giving. And some might argue about that, and that's fine. Uh, we're not going to do it this morning. But listen to the Apostle Paul once again in Philippians this time, chapter 4. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. In other words, Paul is saying that the acts of giving to the work of God was an act of of worshiping God. He didn't say, is it putting it in a plate or a bowl or whatever they used then, or is it putting it in the envelope and Epaphroditus delivering it? Which part was the worship? He didn't get into any of that. He just says, the gifts you sent are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So giving is an act of worship. The next thing I want to point out to you is that giving should be sacrificial and generous. And there's lots of Bible stories we could put out there right now, like the widow's mite, where she gave all she had. I think our kids studied that last, last week in Sunday school, so they probably know more about the story.